Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you this morning. We're going to be talking about loving God with our minds this morning. But I want to begin with a story. Um, in 1977, NASA launched the Voyager 1 space probe, and they had a view to study the outer regions of our solar system, never been discovered before, or never been kind of explored before. And do you know what? Beyond what they thought would happen, it's still in operation today. And apparently, as of mid-September this year, the Voyager 1 space probe is about 14 billion miles away from Earth, which is just mind-blowing how far away it is and unsurprisingly it's the furthest man-made object ever from earth Uh, but 13 years into its journey on the 14th of february 1990 um, the voyager one was about to leave our neighborhood of planets our solar system um, to the very fringes of the solar system now they wanted to shut off all non-essential power but before they did um, they wanted to take one last family portrait of our family of planets in our solar system And so they took a series of about 60 images, one after the other, and they stitched them together. And caught in the center of some scattered rays of light from the sun was Earth. And it appears as this tiny speck of light. Apparently it's 0.12 pixel in size in in an image of about 650,000 pixels. And this image became known as the pale blue dot. And it's a really famous image in astronomy. Now one of the astronomers involved in the Voyager 1 mission, a guy called Carl Sagan, um, he was so um, stirred and inspired by this photo that he wrote these words about it. He wrote this, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That is us. And on it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king, every peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, every hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and every sinner in the history of our species lived here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam and it was one of those moments that all of a sudden just heightened humanity's awareness of just how small and infinitesimal our place in the universe really is you know in the last hundred Years, the human race has made more scientific discoveries about our planet, uh, about human biology, about the natural world, about the size of the universe than all the other years of our human race combined. And you know, these, these discoveries, this newfound knowledge, um, it can be a celebration of human achievement and ingenuity, and rightly so, because it's amazing that we discover these things, but the truth is, there's still so much that we don't know. But at the same time, knowledge has the potential to also boost egos. It can make people feel elevated and superior because of what they know or how much they know. And and do you know what? The Bible warns against this. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, knowledge can puff up. 
And that word to puff up literally means knowledge can make you egotistical and proud. And the Bible doesn't have some great things to say about proud people. Uh, but at the same time, these kind of discoveries, these, this kind of knowledge, when received with a sense of humility, it can also inspire a sense of wonder. Now, Albert Einstein was one of the cleverest minds of the last hundred years, if not of all time. Uh, and he said this, he says, the more I discover about science, the more I believe in God. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself staring at the stars in the night sky, or maybe you've just learned something fascinating uh, about a planet, about human biology, or just the scale of the universe, or if you're a simpleton like me, if you just get fascinated every time you watch a David Attenborough documentary, and you see these things, and you just think, wow, God, you are amazing. There's so much I don't know, but what I know just blows my mind. As Matt said, we are in a series at the moment. I'm asking the question, what does Jesus want for Christmas? And I'm pretty sure that if Jesus was walking the earth today, that he wouldn't give you an Amazon wish list. You know, what Jesus desires more than anything else is to be in relationship with you. It's what he created you for. It's what you're destined to do in eternity is be in relationship with him for you to love and to be loved. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus talks about the kind of relationship that he wants by us, by answering a question from um, a religious leader of his day and he said to Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? In other words, God, what is the greatest thing we could do for you or what is it, God, that you want from us? And Jesus answered by saying these words, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And this morning, we're gonna look through the lens of some of the characters of the Christmas story of what it looks like to love God with your mind. And I just want to precursor by saying this right at the center of what it means to love Jesus, to follow him, to worship him. It's about a heart response. It is all about our hearts, the heart being the seat of our emotion. It's the place our loyalties lie. It's where we make our decisions. The, the biblical understanding of the heart was that it is your inner person, the inner being, the very core of who you are. And... Um, but to love Jesus and to worship him and to know him in a deeper and fuller way requires just more than just our hearts, although that is so central to what it means to love and worship him. But Jesus also calls us to love him with our minds so that we may not just know about him, that we may actually know him in an intimate and deep way. Um, the word mind in the language of the New Testament, um, in, the, in the Greek, it simply means intellect, logic, and reason, to which sometimes we as followers of Jesus can maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about logic and reason when it comes to being in relationship with Jesus, because like, surely it's all about the heart, right? Well, not necessarily. It's God's desire for us to know him in a deeper way by engaging our minds, one of the verses that really spoke to me as I was, as kind of preparing for the, this week is in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And as Paul writes these words, he's not just kind of quoting some beautiful words to heighten an emotional response to God, although these words may do that for you. But Paul is saying, look, these depths, 
There's actually something down there. There's something to be explored. There's something to be discovered. There's a vast depth to the person and the work of God that we can't even begin to fathom. But there is so much more for us to know about him. Um, So much more that he wants to reveal about his plans and purposes for you, for me, for this world. And most importantly, about his love for you and me. And in order to discover it, Jesus is saying, look, you've got to engage your minds in your pursuit of Jesus or in pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer said this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And do you know what? The Bible is packed full of so much truth and wisdom about what we do with our minds, about the things that we think about. And Paul said it this way in Romans 12. He says, you know what? The way that a person is transformed from the inside out is by the renewing of your mind. And so with that said, we're going to dive into the Christmas story. We're going to be reading a passage from Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know, I love nativities. I love Christmas carols. I love getting in the mood for Christmas by retelling the Christmas story. But what I've discovered, and can sometimes be the case for me, is that the Christmas story can get so wrapped up in tradition and all the trimmings that go with it that sometimes it can become a little over-familiar and it kind of loses its place from being a story that actually happened. But these were real events. The Christmas story is about real people, real events at a real time in history. It's, it's a raw story, a very real and raw story that kind of explores the vast kind of um, spectrum of the human condition from things like fear and uncertainty and doubt then to love, joy and hope. And I say this because this morning we're going to be looking at the story of the wise men, or depending on which version you're reading, the Magi, as we just read. And if we want to fully understand who they are and their place in the Christmas story, then I'm going to start by debunking a few Christmas or a few myths about the wise men. And this is not to kind of do away with any nativity you've seen or anything like that. I don't want to do that, but I want to kind of get to the heart of who were the wise men. Um, Now, despite what the Christmas carol says, we three kings, um, it's highly unlikely that there were three of them. I mean, there could have been 12 of them, there could have been one of them. There may have been three, but we just get three because there were three gifts given. And I'm afraid to say they weren't kings either. They were probably kind of highly esteemed people, but they weren't royalty. And and you may know them as Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, but again, that was something added years later. It's not in the Bible. That was added through some Christian tradition to help give meaning and put a face to the names, a face to the, to the wise men. And I'm afraid, unlike the nativity scene we so well, we know so well, it was highly unlikely um, that the wise men kind of joined the manger with newborn Jesus along with the shepherds and the donkeys and the angels and all of that. Uh, the likelihood is that they joined the party way later, probably weeks, um, months, and most likely up to a couple of years later that the wise men came and saw Jesus. But the truth is, the song We Three Kings doesn't have the same ring to it if we were to sing us group of magi of unknown number travelling from some place in the east and arriving late to the party. It's just not going to cut the Christmas nativity, is it? But um, anyway, so who were they? So the, the, the only gospel writer that includes them is Matthew, and he doesn't give us a lot to go on other than the fact that they were 
magi. Now, this word magi, again, if you look it up in the language of the New Testament, it's where we get our word magic from. Not in the poor Daniels pulling a rabbit out of a hat kind of magic, but they're probably best understood as being astrologers, those who would study the stars. And it was most likely that they were from Babylon, which is kind of modern day Iraq. And I say where they're from because this carries a little bit of importance because you see Babylon they were the nation that kind of forcefully removed God's people, Israel, took them um, captive and led them into exile away from their land that God had given them. They had a horrible history with Israel and yet we have these pagan Babylonian astrologers somehow present at the birth of the Jewish Messiah. And I think, what is this all about? Um, I'm not going to go into this too much, but um, little did the Jews know at the time, but Jesus, their Messiah, he wasn't just coming for them. Jesus wasn't just about a select group of people. He was saying, look, uh, this message, the hope of the Messiah, this is for everyone. And it kind of heightens the role of the wise men in the story. But the Magi, they would be people who would, like astrologers today, I guess, they would study the movement of the stars in the sky. However, they would believe that in some way the movements of the stars and somehow these cosmic forces that we couldn't see were somehow responsible for what happened and played out on Earth and in the lives of human beings. And today... um, Uh, Many say that the Magi were kind of like the scientists of their day. I mean, they were set and were engaged in the pursuit of knowledge about how the world worked and why certain things happened. They deduce kind of um, what they observed in the sky and their understanding of these cosmic forces to why certain things happened on Earth. And today we might think about that and think, well, that's a bit silly. That's a little primitive and naive. Uh, But the truth is... um, you have to part with a 21st century mindset for a second. Back in that day and age, you'd be laughed at if you didn't believe that there were forces beyond our control that would start kind of influencing um, things here on Earth. Um, it was a completely different way of thinking, a completely different worldview. And I say that because, you know, whatever your worldview, Wherever you are on your journey of Jesus, whether you're trying to deepen your understanding, your faith in him, or whether you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus person is, don't ever think that the key to the discovery of faith or the deepening of your faith uh, means to disengage your mind. We need to engage our thinking on pursuing the person of Jesus. And these magi, these wise men, these were clever, intelligent, inquisitive uh, people who were just trying to figure things out about how the world worked and their place in the world as well. And yet it was this pursuit of the knowledge of these divine forces and how the world worked that ultimately led them to Jesus. And so the story says that they see a star that rose in the sky. What it looked like, we don't really know. Um, But through what they seem to know about uh, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they believe that this star in the sky was tied to some prophecies about a king that would come out of Israel. And one one of the prophecies that was written about Jesus that the wise men knew about was this. In Numbers 24, it says, A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And so they engage their knowledge of the stars with their vague understanding of some scriptures of this Hebrew God that exists. Um, and it instills a sense of wonder and intrigue which leads them on a journey of discovery trying to find this newborn king. 
And so, um, I was reminded, you know, people will start their search for God in all kinds of different places, with different worldviews, different understandings, different influences on our thinking. But you know what? The more you keep searching, and wherever you start off, um, ultimately it all leads us to one place, and it all leads you back to Jesus. And there's a story of... Um, a really famous scientist who's still alive today, a guy called Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. And so he was highly respected in scientific and academic circles. But he was a self-described, and he says this, an obnoxious atheist. And for him, it seemed clear that science had all the answers about life and everything else. Um, And for him, any questions about the universe could ultimately be answered through chemistry and physics and logic and reason. However, he said in his, in his story that I said over time, through his research, the more he knew, the more he found out, the more he became fascinated and filled with a sense of wonder about how the world actually worked. And he ended up saying, you know, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. And there's so many things that I know that science can't answer, things like morality and the clear idea that there's purpose and design in the creation that he was studying. And it was a sense of wonder about God which led him to an encounter with God. And in his testimony, he wrote these words of how he came to meet Jesus. He said, I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains on a beautiful fall afternoon. I turned the corner and saw in front of me this frozen waterfall a couple of hundred feet high. At that moment, I felt my resistance leave me. And it was a great sense of relief. The next morning in the dewy grass, in the shadow of the cascades, I fell on my knees and accepted this truth, that God is God, that Christ is his son, and that I am given my life to that belief. And I tell that story, but I want you to hear me on this. You know, seeking God with our minds isn't an intellectual exercise to prove his existence. That's not the case. Uh, But as we'll see through the wise men, there's something about engaging our minds in seeking the knowledge of God that when received with humility, it leads us to the wonder of God. And the wonder of God leads us to the worship of God. You know, for the Magi, when they started out on their journey, they were first led to Jerusalem because they thought, if a king is going to be born in Israel, he's going to be born in the capital city, people will know about it. And so they started to ask around, where is this king that is going to be born king of the Jews? And no one seemed to have a clue. And they were like, well, surely you would know if the king, the one that you've been waiting for for centuries is going to be born and no one seemed to know. And then we carry on reading verse three of Matthew 2. When Herod heard about this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, King, uh, King Herod, he was king of Judah at that time, the area in which uh, Jesus was born, and he had a bit of pride, he, um, and he was threatened by the idea of another king being born. And so he calls the wisest people that he knows to give him counsel and give explanation to what might be happening. So he calls priests and teachers of the law who give him this reply. They say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the people of the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I find this part of the story amazing. It's, I was kind of going to skip over this bit because it's the nasty bit with Herod and we want to get to the Jesus bit. But it's interesting that the people that Herod gathers around him are the priests and the teachers of the Lord, the ones who had the most knowledge about God and about the Bible. They knew the word of God better than anybody else. And they hear these reports coming from the Magi that they've seen this star, the thing that was prophesied that the saviour of the world is going to be born. And they knew this. They knew all the prophecies. And here they had about what was going to happen and the interesting thing these priests these holy men they did nothing about it they had more knowledge about God than anyone else but their knowledge simply fueled their egos and made them feel superior so that when Jesus actually came they missed him And here's the sobering truth about seeking the knowledge of God and seeking God with our minds. You know, we can know this book inside out, back to front. You may know it in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever. You may know all of that. And yet it can change absolutely nothing in our lives. You know, there are professors that teach in universities who will teach about the Gospels. They know the Gospels inside out. They'll know them better than any preacher and teacher you will know. They believe in the historical person of Jesus and kind of his journey here on earth. But it changes nothing for them. It's just an academic exercise. um, And it's all about intellectual knowledge. And they miss out on the person of Jesus. I mean, I'm a bit of a geek and I I love to get kind of deep into this. And, oh, what's the Greek and the Hebrew? I find that interesting. Other people, it will bore them. But I find it really interesting. But, you know, I have to watch myself. Because if I just pursue the knowledge of God for my own sake, then I don't grow and deepen my faith. I simply grow my ego and deepen my sense of pride. And I can read this and try and fathom it and understanding it, but if I don't receive it with humility, then it changes absolutely nothing. And in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, we see priests and the teachers of the law, these holy people who are so knowledgeable about God, and yet they see him right in front of them. They see him demonstrating his power and authority and and healing the sick, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, and yet they don't see him for who he is because their pride, their knowledge about God keeps them from actually knowing him. When it comes to engaging our minds in the pursuit of God, it's, it's humility that gives us revelation. Humility allows the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives and takes our knowledge about God from being head knowledge to heart knowledge. And that's the place that brings change and transformation. Verse 9. After the Magi heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
So the Magi arrive at this obscure village called Bethlehem. And I love this moment as they saw the child, as they saw Jesus and his mother, Mary. It says they bowed down and they worshipped him. I mean, these were probably people who were quite powerful, intelligent people, but they were outsiders. They were pagan foreigners that shouldn't have been welcome at the birth of the Jewish Messiah. And yet here they find themselves. It was their pursuit of God that had led them to the very presence of Jesus and their only response was to bow down and to worship him. They were so full of awe and wonder at the king that had been born. It was the knowledge of God which had led them to the wonder of God which eventually led them to the worship and the presence of God. When Jesus talks about loving him, loving God with our minds, it's not about trying to fathom him. It's not about trying to reduce him um, to something comprehensible in our minds. We're never going to understand him. His ways are higher than our ways. We're never going to get to the bottom of that. He's infinite. But we seek him so that we may find him and know him and experience his presence, experience relationship in its fullness. I say this next bit carefully um, because I'm someone who first encountered the presence of God uh, in worship. I encountered the tangible sense of the presence of God in a moment of worship. Uh, And I'm someone who has a massive passion for worship and its central place for the people of God. Um, But growing in relationship and love of God isn't just about what we feel in our hearts when we worship him, although it is so important. Please hear that. But love grows and relationship grows when we come to a greater understanding of the knowledge of who he is. And in order to do that, guys, we've got to engage our minds. You know, when I um, first met my wife, or when I first saw my wife for the first time, I'm going to admit to you, it wasn't love at first sight. To which you might think, well, romance is dead with you, isn't it, Pete? No, hear me out, because I want to say this. When I saw my wife for the first time, I thought, wow, you are beautiful and I really want to get to know you and hang out with you. Attraction, 100%, but love, I I hadn't even spoken a word to her. I did not know her. But my love for my wife, Lauren, it grew when I spent time getting to know her, discovering the person who she was, spending time in her presence and love grew from that place. And our love for God deepens when we take up the pursuit of knowing him. And as we do, we will experience his presence and his power. And so I'm going to land in just a moment, but asking the question, so how do we engage our minds in loving God as Jesus commanded? You know, the Bible talks about lots of ways. I'm going to talk about two real quick as we land. Um, the first is, fill your mind with the wonder of creation. Fill your mind with the wonder of creation. I wonder how often do you allow your mind to be captivated with all that God has made. I mean, whether you're in the comfort of your own home, you close your eyes and you just bring to mind all that you see around you and let it fill your mind with wonder because wonder leads us to the worship of God. Or whether it's going outdoors, going for the walk in the hills, um, by a river, or even to your local park, and just letting your mind be filled by all that you see around you and let the knowledge of what you see lead you to the wonder of God which will always lead you to the worship of God. 
I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 8. He writes this, when I consider your heavens. In other words, when I think about what I'm looking at, uh, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. Fill your mind with the wonder of creation. And, and secondly, um, the last thing I'm going to mention, and I think this is most important, this is number one. Engage your mind in loving him by reading his word. Read his word. Don't expect your relationship with Jesus to grow and to flourish or for your love for him to increase or for you to be able to discern and hear his voice or discern his will and plans and purposes for the world and for your own life if you're not reading the word of God. This is how we get to know him. It is, we, this is why we call it the word of God. God's given it us as a gift that when we read it that we may begin to know not just about him but we will actually know him. And it's not just static words on a page. I mean, this book, this book has changed my life and so many other people's. If you let it, when you read this, not just to glean information about God, but that I might actually know him. It is filling your mind with this that brings transformation in our lives. To use the image of Paul that I used at the beginning, as we begin to search the infinite depths of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God it is here we encounter his presence it's here that we hear his voice and experience his love and the only response is worship I'm just going to invite the band up and I'm going to close with one quick story in 1999 um, a group of cavers they, they read in um, a 200-year-old academic paper about the existence of a network of caves um, and passages that apparently led to this vast cavern that no one had seen, but they'd seen it written about. Uh, it's somewhere in the Peak District. If you know Castleton, it's kind of around there. And so these group of cavers, they were so excited and captivated by this idea that they set about trying to find where it was and where this cavern may be. And after a while, this group of cavers realised that the entrance to this network of caves, uh, caverns that they'd read about must be hidden by some sort of rockfall. And so they spent ages and hours and hours and days and months trying to excavate these rocks and eventually they found the entrance to this new series of caverns. And they spent time exploring them, going this way and that way. And eventually one day they went down one particular passageway and it led to the discovery of this huge cavern, this huge cave. The cave now is known as Titan. Um, it's the largest cave in the UK and it eclipsed the old record by about 140 feet. In this cavern, Titan, it's, it's just under 500 foot high. You could fit the London eye in it. It is vast. It is massive. And what struck me about this story is reading kind of um, what one of the cavers said in an interview about it. And he said this, he said, it wasn't a matter of stumbling upon Titan. It involved a lot of research. He said, but this has been an incredible experience. Any sense of fear or intrepidation has been completely eclipsed by the colossal wonder of Titan's magnitude. And he said, next time you're walking through the Peak District, just take a minute to consider, to think about the magnificent splendor that might exist just a few meters below your feet. And I pray 
that you may earnestly seek after the Lord, yes, with all your heart, with your inner being, that you may experience him in the deepest place. But I also pray that you begin to engage your mind, to take up the intentional pursuit of exploring the vast depths, the riches and the knowledge and the wonder of God, of all that he is, of all that he wants to show you, of all that he wants to reveal to you. And it's there and it's waiting to be found if we just put our minds to it to seek him out. And as you do, just like those wise men, I pray that the knowledge of God will lead you to the wonder of God, which will in turn lead you to the presence and the worship of God. That you may experience more of the fullness of who he is so that you may love him with the fullness of all that you are. Amen. Just before we sing, I want to pray for two groups of people. And just the first group, uh, for some of you, you want to know Jesus more. And you maybe you've been following Jesus for 20, 30 years, and you just think, I've just hit a ceiling. And all I want to pray for you is that the Holy Spirit would give you a fresh pursuit to seek him out, to search the depths of who he is. And I pray maybe for those of you who are engaged in that journey and you're thinking I'm trying to pursue him I'm trying to find out more about who he is and more of his plan and more of his purposes I just pray now Holy Spirit that you bring revelation that you would reveal yourself through your word through creation fall on us afresh God Reveal more of your heart, your character, your love, your plans, your purposes, all that you have done for us. Take it from being head knowledge to heart knowledge that we may be changed and transformed more into your likeness and fulfilling all that you've planned and purposed for us on this earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.